looking on at the great put-on piece of this passage. So starting in verse 12, read to me as our Lord speaks to us through His holy, inspired, and life-giving Word. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do call upon you this evening that you would speak to us through your word. Your servants are listening. We ask of you that you would give us richly your spirit, that we might hear it and apply it in our lives, Lord, that we would See something of Christ in it. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. R.C. Sproul once commented that all philosophy is just a footnote to Plato and Aristotle. He also said it's true that all theology is a footnote to Aurelius Augustine, St. Augustine. You can think of Calvin, you can think of even R.C. Sproul, you can think of Edwards and the Puritans, and they all had this one distinct advantage over Augustine. They had Augustine before them. Augustine had no Augustine before him. And if you've ever read Augustine's book called The Confessions, it's his spiritual autobiography, He tells the story of his life, of how he was far away from Christ, even though he grew up in a Christian home. And he dabbled with all of these different spiritual ideas, much of what we find in Colossians. And as he was being drawn by the Lord, it was one fateful day that he hears some kids outside playing and singing, tole lege, tole lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. Augustine hears this and he's struck by it. And so he thinks maybe this is the Lord speaking to him. And so he gets home and he opens his copy of the scriptures and he turns to Romans 13 and he finds in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And he would then go on to write of the experience. No further would I read nor needed I for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Plainly put, Augustine experienced conversion. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Newness had come to Augustine and his life would never be the same. This is what God does in conversion. He takes an old man and makes him new. He takes an old woman and makes them new. This is what God does when he regenerates a soul. He puts in a new principle into their lives. And so they are changed. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying to us in Colossians chapter 3. 
his point to the Colossians is that they no longer need to seek after these fake spiritual experiences, the asceticism or the old Jewish practices and ritualism or the mysticism that's offered because they have everything they need in union with Christ. For it's in Christ that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. For it's in Christ that are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what Paul wants to drive home so clearly to these Colossians is that if you have Christ, you have everything. If you have Christ, you have all that you need for the Christian life. If you want to grow, if you want to mature, you have the basis, the foundation for it right here in union with Christ. And that's where our chapter begins with that teaching. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Now students, if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be united to Christ? What would you say? Well, old spiritual writers of bygone eras, we used to call it the soul's espousal to Christ. That's what union with Christ is, is that we are made one flesh with him. We are united to him. It's almost a marriage. It's a bond so that where he goes, we go with him. What he accomplishes, he accomplishes on our behalf. Union with Christ is not a spectator sport. We have participated in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And so that's what it means to be united to Christ. It means that all of his benefits are now yours by faith in him. And this idea is so important to the New Testament writers, and especially the Apostle Paul, that he almost rarely ever calls Christians Christians. In fact, he always refers to them as those who are in Christ, those who have experienced union and communion with Christ. Everything flows out of this union, is what Paul is saying. All of the Christian life flows out of union with him. If we want to grow, if we want to mature in Jesus, we must dig in deep to our union with him. And Jesus teaches this very thing in John chapter 15. If the branch is not connected to the vine, there will be no fruit. And so Paul is far more concerned in this passage and elsewhere in the New Testament with getting this idea into our minds. He's really not concerned about giving us a 10-step plan to how to become a better Christian. No, he wants to drill at home that a Christian is the one who is united to Christ. And this changes everything. It means that there are old behaviors and desires that are no longer fitting of us. But it also means that there are new characteristics, the graces and fruits of Christ that should be modeled in our lives. And so it's in this passage that he says, put off the old life and put on the new in Jesus Christ. And so this is what we want to look at briefly this evening. What does it mean to be new in Christ? Well, it means that we have a new identity. It means that we have a new life. And it also means that we have a new family. If you've ever read or watched the movie, Les Miserables, you'll know how important an identity change can really be. You know, the main character, Jean Valjean, who is this convict, 
who has to carry around from city to city his papers that let everyone know that he is a criminal. And he would have to announce that when he came into a city. But after one remarkable display of mercy in his life, he wanted nothing to do with that former life. So what does he do? He shreds his papers, saying the old man is dead. The new man has come. I'm taking on a new name because I want to live a new life. And that's what Paul is telling us here, even in the beginning of verse 12. You have a new identity in Christ. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He starts with our election in Christ. He calls us chosen, meaning that before the foundations of the world, God predestined us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. Paul never saw this doctrine of election as something to be fiercely debated, but something to encourage us with. And because it's in that truth that we are chosen by God, that we cannot boast in ourselves our own good works, but solely in the mercy, the love, the kindness of God, that he would look down on you, he would look down on me, and all of our sin, and say, that one is my beloved. And so this election principally means two things. It means that we are holy, and it means that we are beloved. First, we are holy. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Well, you can find oftentimes in the New Testament in his writings that he will address churches by their proper names. They are saints, holy ones. And you can even go to the book of 1 Corinthians, which has the most dysfunctional and sinful church that you could possibly find in the New Testament. And how does he start out his letter? To the saints, to the holy ones, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and call upon Jesus as their Lord. And so this is an important truth that we must get in our minds. This is our identity. We are called holy. How can that possibly be true? Well, it's because that we are united to Christ. His holiness is our holiness. The Lord has set us apart for a holy purpose. He has called us his own. He has chosen us in Christ. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. It doesn't matter how far along you are in the Christian life. We are called holy. We're a holy people. And this is who we are. But it's also true that we are a beloved people. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Satan, as the great identity thief, loves to mess this up in the minds of Christians. He loves to convince people that, how could you really be the beloved of God if you continue sinning? How can God love a sinner? How can he see you day after day committing the same old sins? How could he possibly call you his beloved? Well, the good news of the gospel comes to us in this passage and tells us, you are his beloved because you're chosen in Christ. It doesn't matter how sinful you are on the inside. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved. He has loved you with an everlasting, eternal, and infinite love that can never change. And so here is this truth. This is who we are. And this is a war of the mind, what Paul is instructing us here. We must wake up every day and be convinced of this truth, that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
because Satan will attack that immediately. You find in the world today, people are confused deeply about who they are and what they are to do in this world. And Satan tries to accomplish that same thing among Christians. He wants to confuse us. But here the Lord says to us this day, you are his chosen one, holy and beloved. This is your identity. This is your new name in Jesus Christ. Some of you parents know the experience of watching children grow physically over the years. And what that often means is that you have to keep up with them and buy new clothes consistently so that you can make sure they have clothes that fit their growing bodies. I remember as a child, I had a favorite t-shirt that I loved to wear. And I never wanted to give up wearing that t-shirt. And so I think somewhere along the way, it went missing. Um, Possibly my mom's gracious uh, and loving way of dealing with that. But there's a truth that a child's clothes or a child's shirt does not fit a teenager's body. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us here. There are certain behaviors, activities, mindsets that do not fit a Christian. But equally true, there are certain activities, behaviors, and mindsets, desires that do truly fit a Christian. And so he uses this clothing analogy. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So in verses 5 through 9, he lists out these vices that we must put to death. But here in verses 12 through 14, he gives us these virtues that we must put on as God's holy and beloved chosen ones. We don't have time this evening to go one by one through each of these characteristics of this new life that we have in Christ. Uh, But there are two important things that we must grasp to understand the bulk of what Paul is teaching us here in this virtue list. First, we must understand that the Christian life cannot be so consumed with mortification of sin that we forget what we are to actually pursue. Sometimes Christians could be so caught up with one or two sins that are persistent in their life, remaining sinfulness, that they focus chiefly on those sins. Yet you won't get very far if you focus only on those sins. You can think about the parable in Matthew chapter 12 where the unclean spirit leaves the house and then it brings seven spirits with him. And so we must actually pursue positive righteousness. There's mortification, but there's also vivification, which means the putting on of the new. And so here Paul is saying, these are the traits. These are the characteristics. This is the mindset you must have as a Christian. This is what you are to pursue. This is your new life that you must go after. After all, repentance is not merely just turning away from sin but it's also turning away, turning towards righteousness. You must turn away from sexual immorality and pursue purity. You must turn away from lying and pursue speaking the truth in love. And so Paul is saying here, get away from wrath, slander, and anger. 
turn towards these virtues that are of the mindset of Christ. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But we must also consider the source of these virtues. It's our new identity in Christ that is as Ezekiel's temple that has a river flowing from it that proceeds out, that creates all of these new mercies and graces, this new lifestyle, this new mindset. It's by understanding who you are and what God has called you to be that then it makes sense. It's almost natural that you would exhibit these traits. Or if you just think about each one of them, Shouldn't Christians of all people be the most persistent and insistent that they model forgiveness because they have been forgiven? Christians should model humility because they've been treated with humility by our great God and King in Jesus Christ who stooped down so low that he even washed the feet of his disciples who treated his people with meekness and gentleness. Shouldn't Christians model that in their own lives. And that, of course, comes from the source of our new life in Christ. This comes from Jesus Christ. And so we have a new identity and we have a new life. But then finally, let's look at our new family. One of the joys that I've had in the last few years is spending time with many of the different families in our church. And one of the things you pick up immediately when you go into a home, are the family dynamics that kind of set apart a home from the rest of differing families. For instance, you might enter into a home and find that there's a holy humor that marks that home. Or maybe there's even a direct form of speech of speaking the truth in love that models, that is the main trait and characteristic of that home. Each home has its kind of family dynamic. And of course, here, what Paul is wanting to say is that the church has a family dynamic, multiple family dynamics, multiple traits that mark it out, that set it apart as different from the rest of the different entities and institutions you might find in this world. We have a new family that makes us unique and different from the rest of the world. And so what Paul does here in verses 15 through 17 is he gives these dynamics And he almost talks about the church in its most ideal form. He talks about it as it's supposed to be. He's saying this is what the church should look like. It's as if Charles Spurgeon, as he said, that the church is to be the dearest home on earth. And so see with me these traits that mark out the new family that we have in Christ. Starting in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first family dynamic we might notice there just in verse 15 and 16, is that Christ is the head of this household. He is the man of the home. He is the one who rules over the church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the peace of Christ that Christ has bought with his own blood. 
that he appeased the wrath of God that should mark the church. It's the word of Christ that should be dwelling in each and every one richly, teaching and admonishing one another because it's his word that's on our lips. It's Christ who is the head of this household. He sets the agenda. He sets the trajectory for this family. He is the man of the house. And so this family is characterized by its head, but it's also characterized by its singing. I hope you notice that just in verse 17. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This should be a singing family is what Paul is saying. You know, there's many ways you could go in and evaluate a church, perhaps by, its, by the quality of its preaching or perhaps by the amount, the quantity of its members giving. But I think Paul would walk into a church and see how does the church sing? Because singing is the end of the church. It is the proper goal. When the church is functioning properly, it will sing sincerely and loudly to the Lord. Because we have all of this grace being poured into us, it's only obvious and only right that it would pour forth praise unto the Lord. And so we ought to be a singing family, is what Paul is saying here. But I hope you also notice that we are to be a thankful family. Three times in three verses, Paul sneaks in some kind of word related to thanksgiving or thankfulness. Notice there at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, the singing that is done is to be done with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so Paul is saying that when a church is functioning rightly, when it is healthy, it will be a thankful community. The old Puritan Thomas Watson once said that Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. But I also think the inverse is true, that the Lord loves to fish in the calm waters of a thankful heart. You can go into a home and if discontent is the primary operative principle There, you will find a thousand other vices alongside of it. But if you enter into a home and you see thanksgiving abounding in every member of that home, you will find gentleness, humility, meekness as they're expressing their thanksgiving to God in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon tells a story in his morning and evening devotional about a little old widow who didn't have much and lived in a cottage only thing she had was a little piece of bread and water. And she looked down on this piece of bread and water and said, What? All this? And Christ too? And that's, that's the spirit that should mark Christ's family. When they understand who they are. When they understand that God has blessed them so richly, they will pour forth praise and thanksgiving to God. Because this is what God has done in our life. We have every reason to be thankful for our very own existence, for our salvation, for our ultimate destiny. We have reason to be thankful. And so what Paul is saying here is that this family, this new family, is to be marked by thanksgiving. As we just spend 
our last couple minutes closing, I want to just pull out a few ideas from this passage that I think is necessary for the Christian life. If we are to grow in Christ, I think we need to grasp these two things. First, this passage presses upon us the necessity of nearness to Christ. We remember from just a couple weeks ago, verse 11, Christ is all and in all. And this applies to this passage. For it's Christ's identity that is now made ours. It's Christ's life that is given to us. It's Christ's family that we've been entered into. See, it's all Christ from beginning to end. And just as Jesus says in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. The way we are to grow in the Christian life is through our union and communion with Christ. It's that we are growing in him, being thankful to him, knowing his word, praying to him, being near him. And because without him, we will never grow. He does provide the strength and the nourishment that is necessary for growing in this Christian life. And second, this passage also shows us the necessity of Christ's church. There's a big underlying assumption that we find in this passage, and it's this, that in order to really grow in the Christian life, you have to be among God's people. Paul is assuming here that all of these family dynamics are going to be worked out in the church. You see, you cannot have a lone wolf Christian. That doesn't exist. We can't grow without each other. And so what Paul is telling us this evening is that if you want to grow in humility, you've got to get near to someone who models humility in their life. If you want to be kind, you think you're lacking in that virtue, you must get next to someone who abounds in that virtue. And what better place to find that than in the church of Jesus Christ? Because it's here that we have the Spirit at work among us. It's here that we have God moving and making his word effectual unto salvation. And so we find in this passage, what a great model of Christian growth begins with our identity in Christ. It pours forth into our new life in Jesus Christ. And it's worked out in the family of Christ. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we do know that without you, we can do nothing. Lord, without your help, we are helpless. And so, Lord, we do call upon you that you would grow us into the likeness of Christ. May our eyes be fixed upon him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, may we grow up in him in every way. Would you give us the word that we might know him? Would you Inspire us to pray that we might speak to him. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.